Thanks so much, Duncan and Azamat. So shall we pray to start with? Lord, thank you that you are always available. Thank you that you want to meet and minister to each and every one of us. And I pray that something of what I'll say will resonate with each person tonight. Amen. Amen. So tonight, I get to continue our deep dive into Hebrews 11, continuing our series, as Jack said, titled The Courageous Life of Faith. And I'm not going to recap what Louise and Jack have already said about the earlier parts, because I would merely be doing a disservice to their wonderful words. But I do just want to remind everyone of the audience of Hebrews 11. And of course, we don't know exactly who they were. But what we do know is that they were a group of Christians who were discouraged, suffering for their faith, and ready to quit. And we know there are so many places in the world of real, brutal, savage sufferings for Christians. But the lessons for a persecuted group of Christians could be helpful in the relative safety of Winchester. Because maybe you don't need the faith to face a furnace or an execution, but maybe you do feel worried about what your friends would think if they knew you were a Christian. Maybe you do worry about the impact uh, it would have at work if people knew you called Jesus your master rather than any other employer. Maybe you do need to think about how this Christian idea of faith, which we'll be unpacking here, works in 2023 Winchester, where most of your mates and most of your colleagues don't have much time for it at all. So let's delve into our passage. And there is a serious amount going on, so I will unfortunately be skipping over some of it. But verse 25 gives us a great starting point. It tells us that Moses chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And within just this one verse, which is a preacher's nightmare because it shows how much can be packed into just a short sentence. But we see both persecution and sin are referenced. And these offer two challenges to our faith for those wanting to walk in the faith of Jesus. And today I'm going to encourage us to stand firm in the face of one and stand firm in rejecting the other. So first, standing firm in the face of persecution and pain. Throughout these verses, we see the brutal reminder that as followers of Christ, we will suffer pain and persecution. In verse 23, we read that Moses' parents had hid him because the king had issued a decree that all male Israelites were to be killed. And then going on, we read in verse 25 that Moses chose to share in that oppression of the Israelite people. And as I was preparing for this talk, I found myself thinking, how much do I really suffer for my faith on a deep personal level? And I think the answer is honestly not that much. And it's not because my friends or my colleagues don't know I'm a Christian. I think it's because of the country we live in. It's provided we don't make too much fuss, we don't hold too many convictions, we aren't too obvious about our faith, we can pretty much get by unscathed. However, as I wrestled with this, I felt like God challenged me that when we read the heroines and heroes of faith, they spend a serious amount of time being persecuted for their faith. And of course, the context is different, but I also think if I'm truly honest with myself, there are moments where my Christian convictions aren't as steadfast as they should be, and I look exactly like the people of the world. You know, I don't hold my tongue, I don't pray as often as I should, and I don't stand up for the little guy. I have no idea if you feel the same, but if maybe you're getting a pang in your stomach as I'm speaking, or maybe you're reminded about it this week, there might be God gently whispering to you the same challenge that he did me. 
one to look more like a Christian who holds their convictions as concretely as the biblical heroes of faith. And you might wonder, why bring this up? Why would the world hate and persecute a Christian with convictions? Well, I think it's because darkness hates light, and that's what we're called to be. The light in the darkness, the candle on the hill, the little bit of heaven in a world of hell and hate. And I hate to say this, but that means that the overwhelming majority of the world, so enraptured with this darkness, will hate the light going out into the world. And therefore, we must be willing to endure the pain and persecution because we are called to it. However, one light of hope and encouragement is that within these verses, it says Moses chose to suffer with the people of God. With the people of God. He's not alone in his suffering. I'm going to be honest, I find it hard to suffer the persecution or at least the fear of persecution, but I am encouraged by meeting together in moments like this to be real and be vulnerable and talk about trying to follow Jesus in a faith, in a post-Christian culture, because you honestly all give me so much strength to stand firm in the face of persecution and stick to my Christian convictions. So let us suffer persecution both alone and together, because we will count it for his glory. I was reminded of the story of Corrie ten Boom, which I'm sure many of you will know, but she was a middle-aged Dutch woman living in occupied Holland during World War II, when together with her sister and their elderly father, they were arrested by the Nazis for sheltering Jews. They were taken to the concentration camp Ravensbrück and faced unspeakable cruelties. Yet her sister Betsy whispered this to Corrie just before dying from the extreme conditions. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Corrie, because we have been here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep. He is not deeper still. And I love this story, not because I must suffer a Nazi concentration camp for my faith, but because it provides me with a blueprint for how to have true uh, Christian convictions and then count my suffering as glory to God. And I'm not saying go out and seek persecution and pain, but I'm saying that, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, the nature of, having, of a life following Christ is our struggle, so it's expected to be hard. But therefore, like Corrie and Betsy, we can use it for his glory. Because the call to a life of courageous faith is to have enough faith to walk into and through suffering, even when it feels like it's our faith that caused our persecution. Just like Corrie and Betsy. And the problem of persecution leads neatly into what we must stand firm against, and that is the problem of sin. So if we head back into our Bibles, we read verse 24 through to 26. It says, It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then 25, he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And 26 26 says, he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Because our lives of faith-filled Christian believers will inevitably lead at times to suffering, pain, and exclusion, there will also therefore always be the option to reject the pain and suffering and live as the world. Moses could have so easily fallen into the trap of sin, And it wouldn't have looked like the overt sin of David of sleeping with another man's wife or Jacob stealing his brother's blessing. No, it would have been this implicit covert sin. 
It would have looked like Moses rejecting his values and his core beliefs in favor of an easy life, one filled with all the earthly privilege a man could dream of. And friends, this is the problem of sin that is most dangerous. Not the overt sin of murdering, because that is a major problem, but we can all recognize that. Instead, the problem of this sin is that we can so easily fall into it, and without even realizing it, we have begun to compromise the very essence of our being at a deep level, and that's what makes it so dangerous. And so once again, you might be asking, why is it important not to fall into the problem of covert sin? Maybe buying things we don't need, gossiping about a coworker or friend, or chasing money, the list goes on and on. But why is it so important not to fall into this trap that Moses so decisively avoided? Well, I believe it's because sin is the great separator between us and God. It breaks my connection with God, though I believe primarily on my part, not God's. And so go with me for a second. If I know I've done something wrong, maybe I ran through a field of wheat like Theresa May, or maybe I didn't uh, do the washing up like I promised I would, I am all consumed with this guilt. I can't stand to look the person I promised something to in the face because I know I messed up. I know I have fallen short of the man that I could be. So therefore, I choose separation over connection because foolishly, I think if I avoid, separate, flee my connection with the person, then my failing won't matter. The first sin in the Bible was eating the fruit, but the second sin was trying to hide it. So friends, it does matter. It matters a great deal to restore that relationship when it breaks. However, the point of these verses is that Moses chose not to sin, to walk the hard path, to be despised by both Egyptians and the Israelites. He was rejected by two groups of people. First, the Egyptians, because though he had killed an Egyptian for attacking an Israelite, being the the son of the daughter of Pharaoh meant he would easily be spared, would have been brushed over. But no, Moses said, I know what I did, and I did it because I will not align myself with people other than my own. But then Moses goes out and he sees two Israelites fighting and tells them to stop. To which they reply, who made you lord over us? Are you going to kill us? And so, once again, a day later, and by the people he had aligned himself with, he chose to leave and be exiled by both his adopted people and by his true people. And that is as close to lost and isolated as someone can be. But instead of surrendering to the fleeting pleasures of sin, he chose the pain and willingly joined the oppressed, marginalized, suffering side. We must reject the fleeting pleasures of sin, the way of the world. George Herbert wrote this, Take not his name who made thy mouth in vain. It gets thee nothing and hath no excuse. Lust and wine plead a pleasure, avarice gain. But the cheap swearer through his open sluice let his soul run for naught. We mustn't allow the ease of sin to stop us accepting the pain that comes from following Jesus. We mustn't let our soul run for naught. Now, I've gone a little hard here, really focusing on the pains of following Jesus. But this passage also goes at length to show that, though there are pains of Christian faith, for which the good news of it far outstrips the pain, but the life without God is so much worse. The fleeting pleasures of sin may try to fool us, but they will always be fleeting. And then sin will, as Judah Smith says, take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. 
So fear not, because I think, though there's these challenges to face, persecution and to resist sin, which we need to be ready for, there's also at least three responses for... Sorry, there's also at least three responses we're invited to pursue in this passage. Because let me tell you, the life of a Christian is hard, but the fleeting pleasures of sin are so much worse. So how do I do this? How do I accept pain and reject sin? Well, I think three very brief reflections from this passage emerge. First, by faith they blessed. Second, by faith they endured. And third, by faith they walked. So by faith they blessed. We read in verse 20, it was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. Going on in verse 21, it was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And then in verse 22, it was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. Three times on their deathbed, these heroes of faith, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, blessed the promise that they would not see come to fruition. I think there's something incredibly powerful about this that we can, if we aren't careful, overlook. That is the power of speaking life over situations that we can't see. Louise spoke so wonderfully about how faith is trusting the things we can't yet see, and that's exactly what these three did. Isaac and Jacob blessed their grandsons, committing their lives and fortunes to the Lord without knowing how they would live. Joseph even more starkly blessed the Israelite journey out of Egypt, even though that seemed so far from reality that even in their wildest imaginations, most wouldn't have dreamed of. And not only did he bless the journey, but he was so confident, he made plans for his bones, long buried and decayed, to be carried with the Israelites. Now that is true faith of things unseen. And I think speaking God's truth over situations, even if it seems far-fetched, nay, impossible, is one way that Christians can persevere through the pain. It allows us in that moment of fear or pain to see the world for what it could be and not what it is. And then when we see the world as Jesus sees it and declare the truth and blessings of God, we can see the goodness in any situation and therefore giving us the strength to persevere through the pain. So, by faith, we must speak life over all situations. By faith, we must bless. The second way to live a life of of Christian convictions is to, by faith, endure. If we read verse 27, we read, By faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Uh, Whilst in the English translation, we read, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Ironically, endure isn't actually the best translation for the word that they use here. The best translation for the original language would be to hyper-stand. And to me, that means that Moses, with complete conviction in the love of God, hyper-stood, immovable against the onrushing feelings of fear and doubt. And so how did he do this? Well, he did it through faith, by setting his eyes on the things unseen and tethering himself to the invisible, immovable God. The late Tim Keller made the incredible statement, which is that you are only as durable as the thing you love most. You are only as durable as the thing you love most. And in this moment when Moses had chosen rejection twice, faced fear, persecution, and human desolation, he tethered his heart and soul to the only durable thing. 
Moses recognized, and I think it's something that we all need to recognize, that if I tether myself to anything other than God, be that job security, money, or a person, they will always fail because they are all finite and fallen. Therefore, if I tether myself to any of these, my durability, my steadfast will fall as they fall, and I will not be able to endure the life that God has called us to. So we must, by faith, hyperstand by tethering ourselves to the immovable, infinite, durable God. And the famous abolitionist Equiano, writing about how he endured the life of suffering he had, said, I was sensible of the invisible hand of God, which guided and protected me. So Equiano, like Moses, in the face of fear and cruelties, tethered themselves to the things unseen. And that is how we can ensure we endure. And so the final way the Hebrew author suggests heroes and heroines of faith remain true to their Christian convictions is that by faith they walked. Verse 29 says, It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. Following verse 30, it says, It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. Again, of course, there is a significant amount of trust in both scenarios. First, that the Red Sea would part, and then it wouldn't come crashing down over them. And second, that the walls of the stronghold would fall. However, I think there is also significance in the fact that these followers of God did something. They walked. They were in motion. And I think this is important because once we have momentum, it's far harder to stop. And I'm convinced that God can use and correct momentum more easily than he can use entirely static followers of faith. Just as it's easier to redirect a vehicle that is in motion, so too it seems easier for, in some ways, for God to redirect us in motion. And Proverbs 16.9 really brings this to life because it says that man makes plans in his heart. Not that God makes these mental plans. No, he establishes his steps i.e. the proverb presupposes that as we walk, God walks with us and directs us. So there is a sense that walking in faith, stepping out in faith, whatever verb you want to use, is necessary to allow God to direct our path. You see, I'm a teacher in a special needs school, and we got some restraint training recently. And the first thing they get you to do is, is called a caring C. You kind of get your hands like this. And then the friendly, which is basically where you drape your arm around the person you're trying to move and then you can kind of direct them where they're going. Now, if they are completely stationary, then this move is completely void, because otherwise I'm basically just pushing them over, and though at times I may feel like doing that, that's not actually that friendly. However, if they have some momentum, even slight and in the complete wrong direction, with a slight adjustment from me, they can end up in the place they're meant to be. And that's the same with following Jesus. Even if we start and are going in the complete wrong direction, God can use his caring seas to direct us to the right place. We just have to have the faith to walk and trust that he will come through for us because he always will. And this reminds me of a story, and I promise this is the last thing. But it's the story of a man who had been a pastor for 13 years. Yet one day he was walking and saw the severe homelessness and desolation on the streets that he pastored to. And in that moment, he reconciled in his heart that he must do something about this. And he later told his wife, I have found my destiny. So he set up new evangelistic meetings for the poor. And not only did he preach the gospel, he also clothed and fed the poor. 
He lived out his Christian convictions. In fact, he touched the lives of so many people that his funeral was attended by 40,000 people. And at the last moment, Queen Mary decided to attend, but having no allocated seat, she had to sit with the common folk. In fact, next to a one-time prostitute. And after the service, the woman tearfully whispered to the queen, he cared for the likes of us. He cared for the likes of us. And that man's name was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And this story is so powerful because he was already doing something, pastoring, and therefore allowed God to simply redirect his journey to the place where he could care for prostitutes and queens alike. And that's the kind of Christian faith I want to have. One where I reject the fleeting pleasures of sin, where I hyperstand in my Christian convictions tethered to the only durable thing, where I'm willing to suffer the pain in order to usher in a little bit more of heaven into the world around me. So Lord, by faith, may we bless, may we endure, may we walk into the darkness of the world to usher in the light and care for the likes of us. Amen.